I will behave now, I promise. I hope I'm not the Jonah and all this. Good afternoon, Colin, by the way. Good afternoon, Pat. Hello, everyone, and welcome again to another edition of Football Ruined My Life. I'm joined today not only by my fellow conspirators, John Holmes, up in somewhere in the Midlands, not only by Paddy Barclay down in Fulham, but to my great delight, we have one of those voices that everybody will know and feel very warm about, because they've heard it for so long and talks usually such terrific sense. Welcome to Patrick Murphy. Colin, thank you very much. I hope I'll be dragging you all down to my level, though, but uh, I'll do my imperfect best to um, stagger along with all you veterans and you sages. Sure we will. We've now equalised. There are two Patricks on the show and only one John and one Colin. Mr Murphy's fine, Colin. (laughs) Mr Murphy's fine. You can call me Ledge. (laughs) (laughs) We're talking this week about the changes that Pat will have seen over the course of his career, but changes that we ourselves as sports fans will have noticed extremely well. We're all of the similar age, so we all go back to at least the late 1950s, early 1960s in terms of our awareness of sports broadcasting, which is mostly the BBC because nobody else got going for a while afterwards. We started by going to synagogue on Saturday afternoons in the late 1950s, and one of the big problems with the boys I was sitting with who were the same age, were 11, 12, preparing for our bar mitzvah, was whether the rabbi would indulge himself in a sermon, which would start at about half past 11. If he did, the chances of us getting home for 12.30 to listen to Sports Parade were drastically reduced, because Sports Parade was where we all started. It was a Saturday afternoon programme starting, I think, at 12.30. It was long before the days of Football Focus, but it did the same job. And there were three particular commentators that I remember extremely well. From the southeast, there was Brian Butler from the studio in London. From the Midlands, there was Larry Canning. And from the north, there was Bill Bothwell, who I think was actually Scottish. I don't know why we couldn't find a Lancastrian, but there we did. From Manchester, it was Bill Bothwell. And they covered all the football matches starting at three o'clock that afternoon. And it's a memory I've, I've, I've retained all these years. And I'm just curious to know, how the others feel about it. Since you are our guest, Pat, why don't you start? Colin, thank you. That was the same for me. I was living in Scotland at the time. I lived up there for 10 years, having moved up from London. And I distinctly remember those names in particular. When I was seven, apparently, I blithely announced to my family, having heard the signature tune and Eamon Andrews, Irish family, we were so proud of him. I announced I was going to work on that programme one day. My mother reminded me of that once I finally got on the programme. But listening during the 50s in particular, Bill Bothell, that rich, lovely, warm voice, he was chairman of Tranmere Rovers, you know, as well. And Bill kept going right until when I started in 1981. Larry Canning also, I took over from Larry, nothing at all to do with me. Wasn't Larry also a Scot, Pat? Yes, he was. In fact, that really only left Brian Butler. The the master wordsmith, the man who once described Inter Milan as the international sweets trolley of a team. (laughs) Those sort of phrases just sparked me off and I filed them away throughout the 50s. I remember John Arlott, who, by the way, was the first football reporter on Sports Report 
in January 1948, John Arlott said to me, oh, I got fed up with all that sports parade nonsense. We had to get there far too early in the day. But all that fired my imagination, definitely. And for an Irish family, Eamon Andrews for us was the doyen. We admired him so much. And it was no hardship to listen to those mellifluous tones. And for a sportsman family, Sports Parade and then Sports Report was the umbilical cord, wasn't it? You could go no further. It was a love affair that was never going to be thwarted by extraneous circumstances or rival suitors for a long time. John, how did you feel up there in the Midlands, stranded as you were? Did you link into the BBC Radio Sports Parade? Of course, but listening to Pat there, I'm inclined to shout Crackerjack. That was where Eamon Andrews... um, he was all over our lives in yeah. those days, wasn't he? In terms of sport, children's entertainment, this is your life. Eamon was the original Mr. Everyone. Yes, of course, Irish people should be proud of what he produced and started actually a train of Irish broadcasters in this country, carried on later by Wogan, of course, notably. Liam Nolan was the first. Liam Nolan was there for and a bit. And Des Lynham well. was born in County Clare. Yes, he was. There was a programme at that point called, I think it was the equivalent of Top of the Form. They had a sporting one yes. for schools. Yes. And I appeared on that. If someone finds the recording, please throw it away. With Liam <laughs> Nolan and uh, Alan Williams and so on. Great voice. I think we finished last. But anyway, that's by the by. But yes, of course, one of my earliest memories, you've listened to sports parade briefly when you were getting your lunch and then I used to go to the game and so on and we used to dash back up Filbert Street onto Upperton Road we used to park just off Upperton Road in Leicester get in the car in time to hear the music going which was the first time we knew the other results because in those days you had no clue as to what the results were you only got the sort of half-time scores midway through the second half by means of that curious thing the alphabet along yes, the yeah. side of the ground so yeah i started really with sports report just to top and tail one thing of a may gents you couldn't get the results until 6 15 on the bbc before sports report in january 48 and the football pink and the green and everything else they weren't on the streets until 6 15 as well so it was a seminal groundbreaking moment when sports report came on on january the 3rd 1948 at 5:30, by the way not at five o'clock but it was still stealing a march of 45 minutes on the other football media outlets. And that was unheralded at the time. Just on a point of information, I don't know about the, the Greenlands and Pinkins and so on, but the sporting post in Dundee, which was white and black, obviously, you would go to, in my case, Dens Park, the game would finish at 20 to 5. And on the way, walking back into the city centre, you would get the first edition of our Pinkin, which was called the Sporting Post. What time, Paddy? Five o'clock. Wow! Yes, but they weren't printed in the paper. That didn't come till the 6.15 edition. But what they would do, what we journalists called a stamping, would be stamped into each paper in a thing called the Stop Press, which was an otherwise blank sheet. And the final results, some were put as latest score and I swear those papers were still warm of course they weren't. Pat I want to keep to radio for a moment the question really is that over the course of your lengthy distinguished career the changes that you've seen in radio 
Well, the technology has obviously made it more immediate. Has the quality of sports broadcasting changed? And if so, has it changed for the better during the course of this career? It has changed, Colin, but a lot of it's got to do with time's winged chariot hurrying near, as Andrew Marvel wrote all those centuries ago. Uh, it's much more difficult now to get things on air in terms of your own personal satisfaction as a reporter, in terms of the producer's satisfaction, yes, because the technology is so much better. You're on bang, bang, bang. Early on in the late 40s, early 50s, the reporters in London used to go into broadcasting house and deliver these things by the seat of their pants for the 5.30 show, which didn't change until 1955. Five mm. o'clock it became there, and then it became a one-hour programme. It was only half an hour from 48 yeah. to 55. Now, speaking personally, when I first started, you always had a minute for your sports report piece. Mm. And the games used to end earlier because there was shorter half-times, there was less cheating on the field, <laughs> VAR's implacable deadly hand wasn't on our shoulder, and games used to end 10 to 5 quarter to five. So you had time to write your finely sculpted, honed piece and deliver it in magisterial form if you were lucky, if you were a Brian Butler. But now you're often disappearing to the interview area. You're actually either writing it when you're stuck in the scrum of mm. punters trying to get through or you're memorising it. And invariably, when you get there and afterwards, you're not over happy with what you've done because of the time constraint, because it's a shorter programme, and also because you have to deliver it in circumstances, and I think I've always come to terms with this quite happily, but you have to run the risk of a Jurgen Klopp or a Pep Guardiola standing alongside you while you deliver a withering assessment of their team. I'm okay with that, because <laughs> I'm an old fart. I'm really not bothered by that, but I can understand how some of my younger confrere could be a little bit intimidated by that, whereas in the past you could be up there in the commentary position and do your stuff and then disappear and go in search of the interview, but these days they come in tandem. And also, I used to feel that a nil-nil draw was a real test of your reporting skills, and I used to, strangely enough, look forward to a nil-nil because you can show your plumage, mm. as it were. Yeah. I remember one occasion, I waited seven seasons before I could come up with one line involving Coventry City. All the way through, it didn't happen until this particular occasion. The game ended nil-nil. I'm punching the air, and my cronies in the press box are saying, what are you so pleased about? It was a crap game. I said, I know. Just wait till Sports Report comes on. And at last, my chance came. I ended up by saying, how appropriate. In the county of Shakespeare, here we had much ado about nothing, nothing. <laughs> Very good. John, I'm coming to you as what I regard as the TV man on this panel. And I want to ask you this question about the difference between radio and television, which, apart from the bleeding obvious, of course, I wonder whether you still see a point in radio that if everything is visible and television gives you the blanket coverage, what is the point of radio reporting? Has it disappeared? Well, of course, one of the points is it's best if we don't watch television while driving the car. Or in the bar. And for any of us who go to football, the radio is essential. If you're in the car, you catch up with what's happened that afternoon. It's very, very important from that point of view. Nowadays, driving home, I drive back about 35 miles of this from my home to the ground or vice versa and you listen to the commentary on another match 
I do remember the occasion when the BBC lost the rights to Match of the Day. And Gary was approached at that time to do a new service that they were thinking of running on the television, which was sort of running reports of the scores. And at the time, we said, nah, it's a bit like teletext on the television. But, of course, actually, the Sky team and Jeff Stelling have turned that into a sort of event on its own. And Jeff Stelling, actually, with the help, it has to be said, of a lot of people feeding him statistics at the back, he really, if he was honest, has no idea that Ken McMurty has scored for the first time for... Kelty Hearts since April the 23rd. But nevertheless, they've managed to do that is radio on television as I see it. The thing I miss most about Sports Report was those editorial sections that they used to have. McIlvenny did them, Waldridge did them, J.L. Manning did them. Patrick Collins. Patrick Collins did them. Well, if I may, can I also add yourself, Paddy? You did some excellent polemics as well. That is the one thing that I do miss most of all I was a trained print journalist 50 odd years ago so I've always revered the spoken word and they were magisterial three-minute pieces which I hung on every word one of my greatest pleasures that I ever had in my 41 years in sports report was I was chosen to do one of those pieces it was in Lausanne October 86, when Birmingham, it seems risible now, Birmingham was in the market to stage the 1992 Olympic Games <laughs> at that time. Wouldn't be so funny now, but at the time, I was obviously farting against thunder on behalf of the Midlands. <laughs> Barcelona got it, and it was a great success, fine. But I was allowed to come off my long run from Lausanne, and I knew full well that I was following in the footsteps of McIlvenny and Collins and et al. And oh, to me, that was absolutely tremendous. One more thing from John, that portability is really important. It is portable. You can see a goal in your tiny little smartphone or whatever you call it. At the same time, if the reporters are good enough, if the vocabulary and the descriptive skills are good enough, you get more. And often before a game, we'd all be having a cup of coffee in the press room and various cronies, journos would come in and say, oh, that I just heard that interview. That was interesting. Oh, well done, blah, blah, blah. The journos come in. They all listen to it beforehand. Well, most of them listen to it beforehand. And I think it's good that you've got that crossover from different sections of the media. Mm-hmm. And I do believe that we still have that portability that TV doesn't have. And I also believe if I may say so, that we still have decent enough reporters to make it sing. I still believe we're relevant. I yield to nobody in my affection and admiration for Jeff Stelling, who's former BBC Radio sports reporter. But I have to say, and it's all in here, this book, this, I, I know you were going to mention it sometime. I did the research for Sports Report, and Jeff, I'm sorry, Sport on Five in the afternoon, we still blow out of the water Jeff Stelling's programme in terms of viewers slash listeners. Yeah. Paddy, you you know have parallel career to Pat here, yeah. and I wonder the changes that you've seen. And this is where I'm trying to draw a comparison between print and radio, and yeah. to an extent television too. Is the demands of the people who employ you, the sports editor, are they looking for different things? Do you yes. have to keep adapting to new demands by the people upstairs who employ you? Yes, they're looking for quotes. I mean, I was going to ask Pat before, and I don't know if he'd have an opinion, he'd want to come in later, about whether, and it's a bit of a loaded question, if the BBC Sports Radio decided to do an editorial now, would it be 
given to germane genus rather than Paul Hayward, who's a distinguished journalist. I would always go for horses for courses, Paddy. Yes. For me, it would be Paul Hayward every time. I would expect Jermaine Genius to talk about the formation of the team, yes. who's playing well, why, who's this person going to influence the side, which I wouldn't expect you or Paul Hayward or Patrick Collins, the others I admire greatly. I wouldn't expect them to have a view on mm. that. But I would expect you scribes, and mm. if you don't mind me saying so, some of we veterans who are still part of the scene to have yeah. more relevant views than a former player, to each his own particular trade. Yeah, I mean, it's not former player is the point I was making, rather clumsily there, because let's look at Gary Lineker. I would listen to an essay by him, but I wouldn't have listened to an essay by him when he was 30. Now that he's over 60, I would, because he knows a fantastic amount about football and about life and about how to relate football to other things. And Gary Neville, I would listen to an essay by Gary Neville, because he's sort of, you know, the exception that proves the rule, if you like. Well, I'd have to see how he wrote, Paddy. Let's not forget the importance of the scripted word yes. then spoken. He can talk quite cogently, though. Can't yeah, very good interviewees mm. aren't necessarily very good columnists. It's to each person's particular trait. I'd have to see what Gary Lineker, for example, or Gary Neville, what they wrote. Just to come in a second there, because you make a decent point. Having said that, what is sometimes written down does not translate well to being spoken. McIlvenny was I one agree. of the few. He was probably the greatest. I'm a bit biased, but I, I believe he was the greatest. Mm. But when he spoke and when he did broadcasts, he was also absolutely brilliant. Those editorial bits, they were done by people who were experienced, actually, yeah. at that point. And they were listeners, John. They knew how to write for radio yes. as a thing from write for their paymasters on the Sunday. Yeah. Just one brief interjection on Lineker. When I was on The Observer, I think it was, John. It was. And Gary was given a column. And he can't have been more than about 32, 33 at the time. He was a bit older and, than that. Just retired, 36. Yeah. And I assumed that the task of knocking it into shape would be given to me. Because most of them... I ring them up and sort of bash it into shape. The point was that I thought this is fine, a five-minute conversation with Gary and the job is done. Oh, no. Gary had to write it. And it was so long ago that there were fax machines. I think it was usually on a Friday night at about midnight. The fax machine would cough and I wouldn't get to bed till about one o'clock in the morning as his thousand words of handwritten copy came through. And, you know, it was what any journalist will understand as a par-marking job. In other words, it didn't need knocking into shape. You would change two words and otherwise just mark the paragraphs. Interesting. Basically, this programme is about the differences between when Pat Murphy started and what he now experiences. If possible, Pat, if you could describe the changes that you've experienced throughout that career and your feelings about whether there's been an improvement, because ultimately, has it got better or is there just more of it about? Well, Colin, I, I don't want to split hairs, if you don't mind me being too Jesuitical. I want to make the point about has it got better? Well, it's got better because it sounds better. But then you've got the other equation. Is the content better? Yes, yes. Technically, sports report to me is absolutely masterful. Can you believe seven people in the studio get that programme out on air? 
Mm. It's quite astonishing. Obviously, there's endless outside sources where we all are. You go in there and you see these worker bees, and it's astounding how they get things out with so few errors. So hats off to those members of the production team I've worked with for 41 years. Now, in terms of content, I do worry, and I have done for quite some time, that we emphasise too much on the immediate reaction from the protagonists. Often by the time we get to the managers, the board, they're part of a production line, the panzer regiment of TV groups down there in the dressing room has to be seen to believe. As I said in my book, it's the Tower of Babel. You can barely move, and for we radio people, that is much more of a problem than ever it used to be. And you've also got a situation whereby not only are the managers bored, eventually when they come to us, just repeating things all the time, but a lot of them are not British. I don't want to go old Nigel Farage on you here, but a lot of these people, they're not bothered about Sports Report. Whereas in recent decades, when I first started, for example, in the early 80s, all the managers and the senior players knew about Sports Report. You'd hear it coming out of the dressing room door, honestly. You'd hear yourself droning on nearby in the interview position. You think, oh my God, the players are listening to this. Strap yourself up, we're in for a bumpy ride. And Guardiola and Klopp and Co, Pochettino, Tuchel, they're not bothered about our legacy, our lineage. So therefore, it doesn't really make things sing for you in those terms. You've got to work harder to get more stuff from them. You've always got to be trying to ask different questions if you possibly can. We do sometimes, in my opinion, not just us on Sports Report, but also on television, we do seem to set a lot of store on immediacy when sometimes that immediacy is not really worth the candle. The boy's done well. We go again. That kind we, of all of us have to think much more forensically and harder about what we are looking for from people. I often have a comment, well, I regularly have a conversation with the editor midway through the second half about who I would like to go for in terms of the interview. You have to think about it and work out what you would like rather than just, oh, crop rotation. Oh, it's all set up. Press officer brings a Jurgen Klopp. I don't agree with that. I would rather go for players. Selected players, I find, are more honest than managers in that key area that half an hour after the final whistle when we're doing our business, when we really are up and running, we really do need something different. So I would always go for a player now, whereas in the past, when I first started, you had managerial titans, Clough, Ron Saunders, Ron Atkinson, Bob Paisley, Bobby Robson, substantial football people. But now you're in a situation where a lot of the managers can't be bothered and they're not interested. And I don't blame them for this because of the proliferation of the electronic media and also the fact they've not been brought up with sports report like so many of the people in the past have. When Peter Jones, in effect, died on boat race day in 1990, family informed the following day, Bobby Robson was at Chelsea, sat behind Ron Jones, and Bobby was England manager, and Bobby had heard that something was up with Peter. He stayed there, he kept listening to news on Peter Jones, and he rang up several times in the sports room that night in 1990. That's the England manager. Now, with the greatest respect, there's no reason why a lot of the current protagonists would be bothered about that sort of stuff. But it certainly mattered to Bobby Robson in 1990, and was he not a substantial football figure then? It's very interesting that you bring up Peter Jones, because when Hillsborough happened, I was at Lord's 
appropriately listening to the radio as I always do on a Saturday afternoon watching the cricket and then it all happened at Hillsborough and I remember Peter Jones's superb description of what was going on he got everything right that day. I was the producer of the outside broadcast that day Alan Green, Peter Jones and Jimmy Armfield. I was down there in the worst possible position Alan Green and I we saw too many black bags going past us into the gymnasium because mm. in those days we had a fabulous interview position in the laundry room opposite both dressing rooms and Kenny Dalgleish and co just kept popping in and out trying to see what we could tell them etc etc well I will say on behalf of Peter Jones but we kept pushing information up to Peter and he kept disseminating it he held the foot magnificently he was 59 mm. a very well-rounded massively experienced broadcast who did role weddings funerals mm. think of Brian Johnson Winfred Vaughan Thomas Eamon Andrews, he was in that stamp. Secondly, Peter sadly had had Heisel four years earlier, 85. Peter could tap into the right sombre way of dealing with it. And if you're going to have to have the best possible broadcaster on that day from our department, it was Peter Jones. And I can still hear him say, and the sun still shines. What you wouldn't have been aware of was that your presence, and in particular Peter's, because he was commentating in the seventh minute, I think, that you prevented it from being slightly worse. I was in the press box, which was between the halfway line and the Leppings Lane end on the main stand side. And in front of us were a lot of what I think must have been season ticket holders from Nottingham Forest. And I can't repeat what they said when people started coming over the fences. It was very florid, and they were jabbing fingers in our faces and say, there, the hooligans have started again. We'll never get back into Europe now. That was the phrase they used over and over again, because that was what we were used to at that time. And the anger was the first emotion. And behind me was... Bob Bomber Harris, who always had the BBC radio sport yeah. in his ear, never watched a match. He was a good reporter, but never had a match without the second opinion of the BBC mm. radio. In fact, possibly the first opinion, you know, if it contradicted what he'd seen, he would he would go, but that was how how, how much it was respected. Buddy, that's really interesting because at the same time, yeah. Yeah. the editor of our programme back in London was facing all sorts of pressure from executives mm. in the broadcasting house who'd been mm. talking to journalists who were coming in and saying, much more people had died than you were saying on the radio. Mm. And to his great credit, Mike Lewis, I talked to him at great length in my book about that awful day. He stood firm. He said, no, I trust our people there. We're mm. going on what they're saying rather than your hearsay. And Good. as a consequence, during those awful few hours, we were probably, if you like, under clubbing in terms of fatalities, but yes. we would not go on anything until we had it confirmed. No, and you were quite right, because, as has happened in incidents overseas, false rumours of greater tragedies in certain incidents, rumours of that can actually cause yep. Yep. further injury and fatality. But anyway, Bob Harris, listening to Peter Jones's commentary, he was able to say, this is not hooliganism, this is a tragedy, people have died in there. The radio on that occasion brought authority and helped to, let me save time, 
Yes. Well, you know how we all out in the field like to blame the office. But on this occasion, I have to say I was very proud of the backup we got from our editor and producer that day in the face of a lot of pressure from inside Broadcasting House, from other executives who weren't part of the department. They stood firm and they backed us. So I've got to doff my cap in their direction because I've never been a management man. But on this occasion, I was never prouder of the trust that they invested in Alan Green, Peter Jones and myself. It was a famous occasion. And I don't remember whether it was Barry Davis or John Motson at, at, at Hillsborough that day. But I do remember it was Peter Jones. Yeah. A tribute again, I think, to the power of radio. It has a relevance that's different from, not necessarily better than, but different from television. And I think it should always retain it. I think our first love was radio and it must never die. Well, here's one for you, Colin. Thank you for saying that. Andy Burnham, at that time, a young undergraduate at Cambridge, Everton supporter, he was at Villa Park that day. Coming out of the ground, he saw Jim Rosenthal, my old colleague and friend, in tears outside the TV truck. He and his mates got in the car, and on the way back to Merseyside, he said, barely a word was spoken. He said, we listened to BBC Radio's coverage of the whole tragedy. And he said, without that, we would have had no proper perspective. And Andy, again, who's very helpful to me with the book, some great eyewitness stuff. And as I say, he was just a 20, 21 year old, which proves John Holmes's point earlier on about the portability of radio. And I do believe, I don't know what TV were doing, but I do believe because we were faster moving, we don't need cameras, we have evidence of our own eyes and we had our electronic equipment plugged in and the interview position near the dressing rooms. As a consequence, I think we were fairly fast moving in a deliberate, cautious fashion. It was a semi-final. It was a Saturday afternoon. They weren't broadcast on television live. No. The situation would have been a lot different if you roll it on yeah. and it were a semi-final on a Sunday afternoon live on television. Of course, now every game is televised in some form or another. And what is interesting is if you go back, and I've mentioned this before, I've got the first 24 editions of the Charles Buck and Football Monthly. And in that, the terror at the idea that games would be televised because they felt if it was on television, nobody would go. Well, actually, what has been proved is that is nonsense. Test match cricket, for instance, which I know Pat's very keen on, and it's been great to watch recently, you know, to see a tour in a foreign country live has been brilliant. Test match cricket has been saved by the fact it's on television because people then watch it and say, I want to be there. I want to be part of the experience. And the same applies to football. It's changed it a lot. Pat will remember that, that actually for quite a long time, up maybe into the 90s even, the BBC Radio Saturday afternoon programme wasn't allowed to give you the identity of the match they were covering the second half commentary. They couldn't tell you till half past three. Peter Jones loved the big reveal. He used yeah. to love all that. It brought out the Barnum and Bailey aspect of his <laughs> character with a flourish, he said, today we're at Craven Cottage and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. And it was fantastic. And we sit, sit there smiling benignly and affectionately at Jonesy really talking it up. But yes, that really was the case. You're right, Colin. There were so many Jeremiah's. Bob Lord, for example, forecast the end of civilization. 
if TV got even a toehold in, in coverage. That indicates, doesn't it, how things change decade after decade after decade. If you listen to Sport on 2 slash Sports Report in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, it's unrecognisable orally to what happens now. It just yeah. evolves. Broadcasting is like that. I'm not saying it's better. All I'm saying is it's different. I think it's even different from, say, 10 years ago. I remember when Match of the Day, you know, it's great, what I regard as great days in the 70s and 80s. There was a main match and there was a subsidiary match. And when you went to the ground and you saw that you were on the telly that night, it was a huge plus. I don't quite know why, because you're actually going to watch all 90 minutes and you don't see 30 minutes on the television. <laughs> the principle was that you've been selected from all these games to be the match of the day. And I just asked the question, is the amount of football we watch on television diminishing somehow its impact? Emphatically, for me, less is more. After a time, you get satiated. It's really important for us as broadcasters, I think, that we should be in a situation where we can actually, if you like, say the emperor's wearing no clothes. We, we really need to stop and say, no, it's just not good enough. No, stop saying greatest ever. John, you're having a, I imagine you'll have a reverse opinion from this, because I think you're in favour of much televised football as you can get. I think the interesting bit is how people predicted the demise of Match of the Day. But actually, there is now a change in that, People are interested in what Gary, Alan Shearer, Ian Wright and so on have to say. Their analysis now leads what you see in the printed press two days later. Match of the day, if anything, has become more influential. It, too, has evolved. The theme tune has only changed once, which is interesting. But the experience itself has changed completely. I can remember when video recorders came out. I was trying to get a television company to pay my clients a really ludicrous sum of money to endorse their video recorders. And I said, sell it on the basis that this way you can watch Match of the Day in bed on Sunday morning. You know, because you either got home from the pub, didn't you, in time to watch it, and if you missed it, that was it. You couldn't watch again. You didn't know what they said. You hadn't seen that goal, which deprived you of any chance of participating of the conversation in the pub on Sunday lunchtime. Shows what kind of life I led. <laughs> it was very important, but that's altered now because not only is there a repeat and so on, you get it on catch-up. I think it suits the zeitgeist at the moment, John, because it's potted. It's a very, very professional product. It doesn't last very long. And in a hectic... Last quite a long time, actually, Pat. About an hour and a quarter, you know. Yeah. Well, yeah. But in a hectic, fast-moving world where there's so many other extraneous attractions, and you're quite right about the importance of the Sunday morning as well, parents sitting watching it with their kids, yeah. etc. You can get it all in an acceptable, comparatively short format. One of my favourite stories about video recorders and a programme with which I was associated called They Think It's All Over which, of course, was a sort of anarchic sports quiz, which the repeat was shown after match of the day. But it was, I think it's all over, was also very much after the watershed. And there were a number of parents who discovered that their children were coming out with uh, some of the language that was used on Think It's All Over, <laughs> because fathers were quite good at programming a video recorder to start 
but not very good at predicting when it should finish. So the kids came upstairs and said, Rory McGrath thinks so-and-so is a complete wanker. And uh, they were, where have you heard that? It was due down to incompetence in terms of video recording by parents. Something just occurred to me because of what John has just said. I feel that the current set of commentators on every station, with the possible exception of Martin Tyler, who's been around for a long time, they're kind of anonymous in the way that when we saw Match of the Day in the 70s and 80s and 90s, it was Barry Davis or John Motson, and they were part of the family. You know, I, I recognise the names when Gary says, your commentator is so-and-so. I recognise the name, but I don't recognise the name and the voice together, and I wouldn't know what they look like, and they have no impact on us, because I think... What John was saying is quite right, that the emphasis has switched from the commentator and the commentary back to the studio. And what Gary and guests say is more important than what the new Motson or the new Davis says. Would that be accurate, do you think? I agree with that. We also live in more strident times, social media, etc., whereby so many people now think the commentator doesn't know what he or she is talking about. I think there's more institutionalised disrespect for sports commentators because so many people think they could do a better job. We go back to Kenneth Wilsonholm, 1966. Great voice, Kenneth Wilsonholm. We go back to Eamon Andrews. Eamon Andrews is a wonderful boxing commentator, you know. Mm. Forget all these other accomplishments. John Arler, of course, was a more mm. respectful age, but also they were of a certain age and they quite clearly knew what they were doing. Peter Jones is another one. The perception now, I believe, I think a lot of people think a lot of sports commentators and reporters for that matter are just upstarts who are stealing a living. And as a result, I don't believe we as a group are as respected as previous generations or as a consequence mm. because of the celeb factor in our society. A lot of people would be much more taken by Alan Shearer, who to me gets better and better what he has to say than what commentators have to say. It's the same in cricket. Who do you think are the coming stars on radio and, and television? Do you see anybody who's likely to take the place of the Peter Jones or the Eamon Andrews or whatever? I mean, to me, they're all 12 years old. So, I mean, <laughs> don't take that. Don't take seriously. Well, Colin, I've got to be careful because, believe it or not, I'm still a BBC staff member. I believe that John Hunt our racing commentator is absolutely first rate. It's quite a, an achievement to replace the great Peter Bromley. I thought Peter Bromley, pound for pound, was our best sports commentator in our history, going back from 1948. But John Hunt, I think, does a wonderful job. He always leaves himself just enough to keep going right when it really matters. It doesn't go too early in terms of excitement and acclaim. I think John Murray, our football correspondent, is outstanding. He is calm, spare with his vocabulary when necessary. He's a brilliant spotter of a player. He gets a goal clip really well. Goal clips are so difficult. What does the, John, sorry, what does the goal clip mean? They got, and, right. And Dalgleish makes it 2-0. Is that the goal that wins Liverpool the title? Uh, that kind of stuff. Keep yeah. it tight, but give the information and roll with the crowd volume as well. You think, wow, John Murray's very, very good at that. Plus, great voice. Radio is about voices. Radio has to be about voices. You want to be friendly with them. You want to think, comfort blanket, I'd like to meet him or her. Now that told me years ago, he said, make people want to go and see you in the pub one night and have a pint with them. 
Well, it's funny, because right at the beginning of this discussion, we mentioned Eamon Andrews. Now, I know for a fact that Eamon Andrews liked me, even though I was an 11-year-old boy. I knew that he was my mate, and he was massive from that point of view. I think Peter Jones was as well. Very much so. I was so lucky when I got this job. I knew John Arla anyway, one of my sports broadcasting heroes, and John invited me over to see him for 24 hours to mark my card about working in radio my word and john sat me down and he said don't just look in front of you look to the right look to the left let people know what's going on you are their eyes and ears you've got the want to make them warm to you to think oh i'd like to meet him one of these days and that's john Harlan. listen we need to wrap up but before i do so i want to say not only thank you to pat murphy but i want to ask about this book this is a book about the one program that all of us share a deep and abiding love for sports report and since i can't see you pat could you tell us what it's called it's called bbc sports report a celebration of the world's longest running sports radio program i conceived the idea during lockdown got to keep the brain cells going and we love an anniversary at the BBC, and I knew that the 75th was coming up in January, and I started to interview various people. I started, if I may say so, callously with the 90-year-olds and the 80-year-olds. I made sure I got all their observations. I got Barclay fairly early. I interviewed <laughs> 165 people, but like Topsy, it just grew and grew and grew. Not just the, the protagonists, but listeners. I interviewed every presenter from Eamon Andrews onwards plundered the BBC archives. Fundamentally, it's also social history, if I may say so, mm. because when Sports Report started, black boxers could not fight for British titles until later that year. And yet one of the guests wow. on the first programme was Joe Louis. It's from the age of rationing all the way through to COVID. It's from Clement Attlee as Prime Minister through to Rishi Sunak. In the year that Sportsport first saw the light of day, 41 million people came through the turnstiles in the football season. 82,000 saw Manchester United play a couple of weeks after Sportsport first saw the light of day. So it's basically a history, I think, of British sport, as well as looking at how British sport fitted into our society down the years. I hope that doesn't sound too pompous to you all. Not at all. It sounds absolutely fascinating. Yeah. And I can't wait to get a, a free copy. It's oh, Colin, I cannot believe you're not on the list. Paddy Barclay's had a copy. I've had a copy. And what I would say, it is a history book and I would recommend it as a Christmas present for uh, December 2023. I mean, get your Christmas presents in early. Well, thank you. If I may say so, in what could be laughingly described as a long career, ill-starred much of it, written endless books, done lots and lots of things, been a, in the business since 1970. My proudest boast is that I've been a full-time reporter for Sports Report. Forget everything else that I've been associated with. I always wanted to work on Sports Report, and I still do. And that's why this, in a sense, it's a love letter to a great programme. Only seven programmes have got a longer shelf life on the BBC than Sports Report, January 1948. The oldest is, I think, is it Yesterday in Parliament? No, The Morning Service, and then it's Yesterday in Parliament. So it's older than The Archers, older than the Today programme. Given a choice between Yesterday in Parliament and Sports Report, I think I'd probably opt for Sports Report. But thank you again. Thank you, Pat Murphy. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you. Thank you as ever from John. Cheerio, chaps. And goodbye too from Paddy Barkley. Bye, everybody. Hope you enjoyed it. This is Colin Schindler saying thank you for listening. Hope to hear from us again on the next edition of Football Ruined My Life.
Cheerio to you. Bye. You can let us know what you think about Football Ruin My Life by emailing us at footballruinmylife at gmail.com. That's footballruinmylife, all one word, at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you.